Amen. I would invite you this afternoon to turn back to the first passage that we read together in the Old Testament Scriptures. We come in our exposition of Isaiah to chapter 14 this afternoon, and we'll be considering the whole chapter uh, with the Lord's help. You notice that it begins with the indication of mercy, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. And then it reaches its crescendo in verse 32. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. Last Lord's Day afternoon, we considered Isaiah 13 under the theme of the rise and fall of empires, and we traced in that biblical text an outline of the rise and fall of Babylon and the pattern that it provides for empires in, in every age. And as we all sensed at the time, it was heavy, right? It felt heavy. Um, thinking about all that the Bible tells us regarding the rise and fall of worldly, earthly empires, it casts a heavy shadow, a dark shadow into the background. But it does so in the Lord's wisdom as a way of setting off the light of another truth, a very important truth which follows here uh, in chapter 14, immediately after uh, chapter 13. And that is that while the world's empires rise and fall and they're self-destructive and the Lord unwinds them and disposes of them and so on, there is another kingdom, which we referenced last week. There is one kingdom, one singular kingdom, one truly unique kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that endures forever, endures throughout all of history, endures throughout all of eternity, a kingdom that is unbreakable, undefeatable, a kingdom that will continue to shine more and more, brighter and brighter to the coming day. And it has always been the case. It's interesting, you have a, a passing reference in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that indicates the fact that it has always been the case. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. What we learn is that uh, the, the story of the church of Jesus Christ is front and center. It has center stage in the history of the world. And while in every age, not just our own, the nations of this world seem to kind of take all of the attention, they are in fact merely the window dressing. And they are merely the moving parts around the centerpiece of what Christ is doing with his church. And so really for a Christian, you know, we can't read uh, history, any history, uh, uh, in a way that is disconnected from that. You know, we can't just read the, the various stages and seasons and uh, epics and, and eras of various parts of the world throughout history independently. We, we have to read them with an eye on church history. Because we recognize that church history is actually the core of the story. And that all of these other things 
are what God is using to the end of his own purposes with his, with his kingdom. And so it is that we come to chapter 14 and discover that very point reinforced yet again in this portion of, of God's word. And the note falls, the emphasis falls, as I've indicated in the, in the title of the sermon, God's foundations in Zion. The emphasis falls on that crescendo in verse 32, which we'll be coming to. But we'll consider three things this morning in our exposition of chapter 14. First of all, God's mercy on Zion. So first of all, God's mercy on Zion, those opening few verses, verses 1 to 3, which we'll consider relatively briefly. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land and the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob and the people shall take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of, of the Lord for servants and handmaids and they shall take them captives whose captives they were and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. Now, one thing that's helpful here is, and this is um, something we should always have an eye for, textual clues when reading through the prophets. Are there time markers? Are there indications with regards to the historic context, because that helps us. You'll remember how it was helpful in Isaiah 6, the, the year that Uzziah, King Uzziah died. Isaiah has this vision. That's not without significance, as we noted then. And here in chapter 14, you'll note in verse 28, in the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. So we, we come across that thing. We don't just read over it quickly. We immediately recognize it. It jumps out to us. We think, aha, well, this is helpful the year that King Ahaz died. So we can go back and look at this. And so we'll turn, for example, to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and there we have the historic context. So in 2 Chronicles, we're seeing the works of God, what he's unfolding in the history of providence. In Isaiah, we're seeing the word of God that came along with those works of providence. And the two have to be read together. When you're reading through the historical books, you should do it with an eye on what the prophets were saying at the time. When you're reading through the prophecies, you should be doing it with the, with the background of the historic uh, the backdrop in your, uh, before your mind and so on. Well, you go to 2 Chronicles 28 and you discover that uh, Judah is at a low point, right? They're broken. Just to give you one verse, if you look at verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 28, for the Lord brought Judah low. Because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. So that, that captures really what, what chapter 28 tells us. So Judah's been made low. They've been broken. They're humbled. This is a dark time, a difficult time, a heavy time, perplexing time, right? There's anxiety, there's uncertainties, and so on and so forth. And if you read the chapter, you'll see there's divisions, Within the, within the people of God, there's the threat of invasions that are coming in from outside. All of this is brewing in the background. And in that context, the Lord brings Isaiah 14 to this downtrodden, lowly people. Low, mind you, because of their own sin. But he brings this word of chapter 14, which is clearly, unequivocally, good news. Right? It is a bright light 
in a dark place that the Lord is bringing to them. And so we see the Lord unfolding uh, these things in what, in what follows. So God's mercy on Zion, that's how it opens. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. He will have mercy, right? There's, there's been tyranny. They have suffered under the iron grip of, of tyranny. They have been under the heavy boot of severe oppression. Indeed, there's references to it here, even in verse 2, reference to the fact that they were oppressed in verse 4 and so on, 6, 17, and throughout the chapter, you'll see looking back to the, the things that they've suffered, right? And the descriptions that are given are really descriptions of tyranny every time it appears. So the, 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 the hallmark characteristics of, a, of tyranny and of of, of oppression. We'll note a few of those in, in a moment. But the Lord's word to his people is mercy. Mercy matches misery, right? When we are miserable, when we are feeling the miseries of our circumstances, it is mercy that brings relief. It is mercy that delivers and grants us help. Now, the misery comes from sin, and in the case of Judah, that was the case. They're following Ahaz. They're, 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 they're following uh, the evil patterns of Israel. They're going along with the crowd. They've been influenced unduly. And they've created a disaster because of their, their sin. And that sin has resulted in all sorts of hardship and difficulty for them. But the Lord doesn't leave them. The Lord looks with pity. Do they deserve it, children? No, they don't deserve it. Have they earned it in any way? No. Is there anything in and of themselves that would merit this from the Lord? The answer is no. Misery is an appropriate lot for them. But the Lord looks with pity. And he comes with provision to give them mercy. The Lord delights to remember mercy. The Lord loves to bestow plenteous mercies upon his people. And even in our difficult and sometimes dark circumstances, circumstances that are a consequence of our own folly, the Lord tells us that he delights in those who hope in mercy. For us to hope, have a confident expectation of saving, redeeming, condescending, gracious mercies from the Lord, despite our sins, to come with penitence and faith and hope for mercy. And what's the Lord say? The mercy is going to take the form of a grand reversal. They've been under the boot. They've been under the rod of oppression. They have themselves been captives, enslaved. They have been suffering in all of these different ways. And the Lord says, I'm going to turn it all upside down. There's going to be a grand reversal at a remarkable scale. He says in verse 2, I'm going to bring you to your own place and, and you're going to have them for your servants, right? You are their captives, but now they're going to be your captives. You know, you're going to actually, rather than being underneath them as oppressors, they will be under you. He's saying to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've, you've suffered all sorts of hardships and difficulties and setbacks and, and I'm going to turn it around 
so that those who seemed invincible and were in power and had control and seemed to be charting the future are going to discover to their astonishment that the future is in the Lord's own hands and that that future entails triumph for the church and upheaval for his, his enemies. He says in verse 3 that indeed it'll, the Lord is going to give rest, right? Rest from what? Rest from sorrow, rest from fear, rest from bondage. All of these things are wearisome. We can wear ourselves out in sorrow. You know it in various degrees. The way in which it completely sucks energy from, from our being. Fears. The fears of enemies and hardship and difficulty and so on. Being under hard bondage. All of these things wear us down. The Lord is saying, no, no. I'm going to give mercy, which is relief, which is rest. You're going to be at ease. You're going to be at peace. In other words, from the very beginning of the chapter, we're being given clear indications that the Lord's end is good. Now this we knew from the beginning. So even in all of the the, the dark valleys that the Lord's people are sent through, even under the, the most sore chastening that the Lord has sent his people through, their time in the Babylonian captivity, which is still ahead, in terms of history from Isaiah 14, but all of those sorts of incidents are the Lord at work ultimately for the good of his people. He is working his love through his chastening so that even a trip to the woodshed or a season in the woodshed is going to end up bringing about what ultimately God's people want. It's going to beautify them, beautify the meek. It's going to train them and transform them and shape them into the glory of likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to wean them from the world. It's going to bring with its sting a decrease of appetite for sin and an increased attachment to the Lord himself. The end that the Lord has is good. He says, days of mercy are coming. God's mercy on Zion. Well, then secondly, God's deliverance of Zion. And this is the bulk of the chapter, right? The, from verse 4, really, through verse 31. God's deliverance in Zion. And it's divided into three parts, all condensely placed within this one chapter. The Lord is addressing three different enemies, right? What he's just described in terms of mercy, he'll now give in greater detail. There are three enemies. There's Babylon, so that's whom we've just spent time thinking about in chapter 13. We heard all about Babylon and her glory and power and invincibility and oppression, tyranny, so on and so forth. So she's the first of the enemies. In verses 4 really through verse 23, he describes deliverance from Babylon. Then he describes deliverance from Assyria in verses 24 to 28. And then he describes, lastly, deliverance from Palestina. Uh, this is the... This is the Philistines, right? Palestina, Palestine, um, Philistine, right? They're words for, uh, Palestine is a word for the Philistines, and we also call it the Philistines. So verse 29 to 31, there's this reference to um, the Philistines. And so here, first of all, you have deliverance, the, God's deliverance of Zion from Babylon. Verse 4 reinforces what we heard last week. You know, how hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city 
ceased, right? She is the golden head that's depicted in, in the dream that Daniel in her, in, uh, interprets. She is the, the queen, as it were, of the ancient empires in so many different ways. And he says, it ceased. What seemed permanent, what seemed unmovable, actually comes to an abrupt halt, an end, a conclusion. It's banished and it vanishes. It's gone. This unthinkably glorious kingdom, which the world could never imagine being without, is actually wiped off the face of the earth and its memory cast into the dust. You think of some of the descriptions that are given. You'll notice, again, the result of this, the Lord bringing judgment uh, to, to Babylon results in rest. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing, right? The, the removal of tyranny, the removal of despotism results in the joy. Even the fir trees are going to rejoice, the cedars of Lebanon, and so on and so forth. So there's relief that is brought. But what happens to Babylon is that she's weakened. Verse 10, all, all they shall speak and say unto thee. And it's, it's almost with bewilderment. Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? So that the nations which were under the boot of Babylon are now scratching their heads in disbelief and saying, is it possible? Babylon is now as weak as we are. Babylon has now been brought all the way down to be made like unto us. Verse 11, she's humbled. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. And the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. In other words, you're engulfed in worms. Under and above you, you're covered. You're, you're, you're like, it's a living picture. What do, you know, worms eat stuff. Right? It's as if, as if they're being consumed. They're worm food before the Lord, made so by, by the Lord himself. This is humiliation. It's not just, well, the scene's changed and you know, things have altered on the geopolitical scale and things have moved around a little bit. And you're left, well, okay, they're not right, quite what they were. No, the Lord's saying humiliation, utter humiliation. God delivers Zion from this. You come to verse 12, and we have what is a relatively famous passage, I think. Verses 12 and following, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? You know, it goes on, I will ascend up to heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. You know, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So historically, you know, people have, commentators and others have come to this passage and they're divided. And so some say, well, this is actually a description of the devil. And so it's giving us biographical details of the devil, going back to the beginning of, of time, the fall of Satan and the, the, the reprobate angels, the, the fallen angels that fell with him. This is a description of what is happening. Others say, no. This is a reference to the king of Babylon. This is the whole context and flow of the passage. It's referring to the king of Babylon, and that's what's, what's being described here. And I think the answer is, well, the answer, the immediate answer is, this is in the first instance 
uh, a reference to the king of Babylon. Right? That's what's being described. So it's describing the king of Babylon in the first instance. But we don't have to choose between the two. Because the king of Babylon and what's described here is actually reflective of the devil. And so the two were one in terms of their description. It is an appropriate description of the devil himself, and it is uh, an appropriate depiction of the king of Babylon. And the reason those two things can be easily held together, the king of Babylon in the foreground with the devil, as it were, Satan in the background, is because the devil and his instruments bear the same likeness. Lucifer means day star, right? You can even, you know, Latin, the, the opening of the first syllable of the, the word Lucifer, light, is seen there, right? So it's describing light. But my point is that the devil's instruments are always in the devil's own likeness. An example of this would be uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14, where it says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, in this case, it's a reference, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, it's a reference to false teachers, false apostles, who try to put themselves off as from God and having the authority of apostles who are actually instruments in the hand of, of the devil. But the point I'm making is the devil's angel of light, his ministers, in this case false apostles, are also uh, come across as ministers of light. There's a likeness, a similarity. They bear the image of the devil. And so too with the king of Babylon, right? The devil is the ultimate tyrant, Right? He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, our Lord says. He is the oppressor, the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who goes about seeking to devour people, devour the Lord's people. And so no wonder that the king of Babylon would be depicted as so similar to his father, the devil. Right? The two are, are similar. And so what, 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 are the, what, what do we see in the description? I think the most notable thing is the attempted deification. The attempted deification. Right here you have the king of Babylon saying, I'm, my throne is going to be above the stars of God. I'm going to sit in the mountain of the congregation. I, I'll ascend above the highest clouds. I will be like the most high. Right? He will have nothing less, nothing lower than being God himself. And when you read the language of Nebuchadnezzar, it sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? King of Babylon, who describes his kingdom and all the glory and everything he's done and how he's invincible and so on and so forth. This lust for deification. Now, this is true of spiritual antichrist, isn't it? This is true of, of the spiritual Babylon. Because we have, we were noting last week, and I won't repeat here, the parallels between ancient Babylon and spiritual Babylon, described as such in, in the book of Revelation, the whore of Rome. But this, this, this point is made in 2 Thessalonians verse two, or chapter 2, verse 4. The man of sin, the son of perdition, is described in this, this way. 
who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that characteristic of, of, of the mother of harlots in a spiritual Babylon, Rome, uh, the Roman religion, papacy, is, bears this same likeness, right? This desire for deification. So the Pope, without going on a rabbit trail, the Pope claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth. That's, that is absolute blasphemy. There's only one vicar of Christ on earth, and that's the Holy Spirit, God himself. Right? He claims titles of his holiness and the King of kings and Lord of lords and all sorts of other things that belong only to the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's this whole point of, of, of exaltation. And really, you know, we can, um, without going too far on this, you can see the same trend with regards to the rise and falls of empires. So Babylon doesn't stand alone in this, right? Empires gravitate toward deification, the state becoming God in terms of control, influence, in terms of being the source of all you know, that is needed, the savior of the people, and so on and so forth. So there's this self-aggrandizement, verses 13, 14, 15, you see it, the pride that is there, the pomp, uh, in verse 19, but thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch as the, ra- as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as the carcass trodden underfoot. In other words, that pomp is no more. And the Lord has his way of of humbling uh, people. You have in in the next section, moving on, the next section you have references to Assyria that are by way of parallel. Uh, I should say here, oh, that Hezekiah had studied his Bible. You know, when Sennacherib came and so on and so forth, he had the word. He, He actually had what he needed. How should he respond? to all that was happening, unfolding there. Well, he had it here in Isaiah 14. And he could have gone and read it. And he could have seen what the Lord had promised and what the Lord had said and acted upon it. And he didn't. And he paid for it as, as, as a consequence. But here you have the reference to Assyria in verses 24 to 27. And the thing that really stands out in this section is God's plan and purpose, right? Repeated. The Lord of hosts hath sworn... Again in verse 24, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And then again in verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out upon all nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, who shall disannul it? His hand is stretched out, who shall turn it, who shall turn it back? God's purpose versus man's purpose, right? Man has all sorts of plans, all sorts of purposes that they put into motion, that they, pl- that they implement, that they have, you know, remarkable resources for. And this is what the world thinks about, you know, who's doing what on the geopolitical stage and what's unfolding and who has the power and what are the tools and so on and so forth. And people are absolutely infatuated with it. But Lo and behold, they're missing entirely the fact that God has a plan and God has his own purpose. And the fact is that when God's purpose, when man's purpose lies contrary to God's purpose, 
man's purpose evaporates. Because when the Lord purposes, what he purposes by his divine sovereignty stands. When the Lord stretches out his hand to accomplish something, all of the forces of the universe multiplied by billions cannot do anything to withstand it, can't turn back his hand in the least, right? He is the one who is almighty. He is the Lord of hosts, as the passage says, right? He is the one who is invincible in his, in his power. What God determines, God does. And when he determines to crush the enemy in order to deliver his people, it happens. And so Assyria, too, is broken under the Lord's hand. And then we have, lastly, we have under this point, uh, the, the Philistines. Palestina, as it says in verse 29 and, and following. Here you have, you know, this is the people who lie to the southwest of Israel and who had been a menace uh, so often. But notice in verse 29, Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. What's happening here? What's happening here is the Lord is obliterating Assyria, he's obliterating um, Babylon. That brings relief and deliverance not only to Israel, but also to the Philistines. And so now they're put in a posture where they can rejoice, right? They're thinking, this is, this is wonderful. And the Lord notices. He's watching. And he notices the Philistines rejoicing that the rod was broken over them. I mean, under the day, in the day of David, in the day of Uz, King Uzziah, they were underneath Israel. They were subjected to God's own people. And they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, we're being set free. We're rejoicing. They're getting full of themselves and excited and so on. And the Lord says, no, no, I see you're rejoicing. I see what you're thinking. And here's the news. The news is that you're going to be wiped off the face of, of the earth. Right? They're, they're actually going to be wiped out by Babylon. From the north, a smoke, and none shall alone uh, be alone in his, in his appearing. And so the Lord takes note of this, and he pledges that the Philistines will also uh, be brought down. But then thirdly, this brings us, and I want to settle here a little, God's founding of Zion, because this is the culmination, this is the crescendo, if you will, of the chapter in verse 32. It's what helps us interpret the whole. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it, or as your margin says, betake themselves unto it. So what's happening? Well, first of all, the nations are inquiring. The nations are asking questions. They're, they're wondering about God's dealing with his people. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? You know, when people are, when the nations are saying, what's going on here? We're told anyone will be able to answer that the Lord hath founded it. Zion, the poor of his people, shall trust in it. The answer will be unequivocal. What was it that God is doing? What was God doing with the nations? What is God doing ultimately with his people? What God did 
was he founded Zion. He founded his church. He was, he was laying foundations for his church. It's helpful you know, to think about Psalm 87, which we sing, because it casts light on, the, on verse 32. One of the songs of Korah. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. You can read the rest of it on your own. What was God doing? God was establishing Zionists. When it speaks of the Lord hath founded Zion, he's saying he has established Zion. He has established his church. In other words, he is establishing their interests. He's furthering the church's cause. He's bringing forward the work that he is doing with her and in her and through her. This is God's purpose in the world. That's the answer. What's God doing? What's going on here is the question. And the answer is God's entire purpose in the world is the establishment of his church. Everything else serves that. The Lord hath founded Zion. It's interesting that the nations notice the church is conspicuous as a kingdom. It, it is in every age, even in our age, when she's, when she's disregarded as irrelevant and set on a shelf, she still stands out as conspicuous from every other kingdom. And the nations, in one way or another, sooner or later, have to pay notice to her. The nations can't get around Zion. They can't get around the church. They can't just dismiss her altogether. Because she does stand out by standing apart. The church is a separate people with a separate kingdom and a separate king with all of the glory that is attached to it. And in that sense, she dwells alone in every age. We're grateful for times when nations, when kings and judges kiss the sun and pay homage to him. When they lend their civil strength for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom and glory in the earth. We rejoice when Gentile kings and queens are made nursing fathers and nursing mothers to the church, and we desire that that would be universal. And we look for the day when it will be far more pervasive than it ever has been before in the ages to come. But the fact is that she does stand out. And she should. Because the Lord said from the beginning, in the days of Moses, you remember the language in, in Deuteronomy 4 when he says, look, even the law I'm giving you, I'm giving you this law, and the nations are going to sit up and pay attention. And they're going to say, what is this? You know, where did, where did such a wise law come from? You know, who is the God that gave this to you? And so on. The Lord said that that would be the case for his church and his people. And so even, you know, Pilate in, in, in his interface with the Lord of glory, the great king of heaven and earth. I mean, what a remarkable thought to see, to, to, to imagine the two of them in the same place at, at the same time. But art thou a king? He says to him. Wow, what a question. Art thou a king? He's asking the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. The one who excels all kings is the king of kings and lord of lords. Art thou a king? 
there's an interface, right? There's, there's notice what's happening here. They say you're king of the Jews. Something stands out and stands apart, and it always has, and it always will. And so the nations notice when the Lord is working in ways that further the interests of Zion, it becomes conspicuous. And it is so glorious that really anyone could answer. In verse 32, the Lord hath founded Zion. He's established his church. And it says, and the poor of his people shall trust in it, margin, betake themselves, betake themselves uh, to it. Right? In other words, um, they shall place their confidence in it. Translate it that way, or think of it that way. Right? They'll put their trust in Zion, in the church, in the work of God, in God himself. They're going to transfer their confidence to this. And so the Lord's doing something. He's establishing his church and all that's going on. But it's not as if his people are left. They also are doing something. What do even the poorest of his people who have been downtrodden, the most worldly insignificant of his people, what do they do? They place their confidence in the work that God is doing. In other words, God's people are being called, given the fact that God's establishing his church, given the fact, as our Lord taught us, that not even the gates of hell shall withstand the church, given the fact that the Lord is going to use her as a force to be reckoned with in the earth as a whole, so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Because of all of that, God's people are called to leave everything else and to give themselves to it, right? To betake themselves to it, to give themselves to it. Does that sound familiar to you? How about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things he'll add unto you. All the stuff the Gentiles seek after, the thing that the world is occupied with, the thing that everyone else makes a lot of fanfare about, Leave that. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of of God. And so the people of God are being called, however poor and weak they may feel, when they see God's purpose, when when God reveals to us in his word, "Here's, here's here's the story, here's what's going on. My purpose is to establish my church. The Lord's people will leave all else and give themselves to it, to this work of the Lord establishing his church. And the, 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 tr- the difficulty that comes is a preoccupation with our private pursuits. Preoccupation with our private pursuits. This was true for Judah. The Lord says, you're going into Babylon, get into Babylon, g- get in there and do this, that, and the other thing. No, 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 we're not going. We don't want to go. You know, they, they, they had their own interests that they wanted to care for in Jerusalem. They're not following the Lord's hand. Then they're in Babylon for 70 years, and the Lord says, all right, everybody's going home. And they're like, wow, you know, we want to stay in Babylon. We've, like, put a lot of time in here. We've set up our own stuff. We've got our house, our property, and all the things we've developed, and everything else that we're interested in, and so on and so forth. We don't want to go back to, to Jerusalem. It's, in, it's, in, it's rubble. It's a rubble heap. It's all in ruins, and so on and so forth. So it's no different in every age. Right, the temptation to be preoccupied with our private pursuits, our own cause, you know, to put it crassly, our own little fiefdom, 
our own little kingdom, our own name, our own pursuits and interests. The Lord's saying, no, 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 no. When we can see clearly this is the Lord's purpose to establish his church, then we align with God's will. We align with God's work. We align ourselves with him. We realize that our calling is to glorify him in every way that we possibly can. And he tells us how it is that we, we glorify him by seeking first his kingdom. And as a famous missionary said, we take care of his interests. He'll always be sure to take care of our interests. For interests, our interests are his interests. And it helps us, doesn't it? It helps gives clarity. You know, this whole business about missionaries and praying for missionaries, supporting missionaries, being interested in what we heard last week about the work that's going on in Mexico or the, the, the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the conversion of sinners here and growth of his church and establishment of places of worship and the influence that that has in various ways. And we can multiply by many fold all of the, the examples of this. But it, it, leaves us, it, it leaves us with something really simple. You know, we have so much in terms of opportunity, possibility. Where are we going to put the emphasis? Where are we going to devote our, our strength? And it, it comes down to this, a single question, really. What is in the best interests of Zion? What's in the best interests of Christ's kingdom? That, that simplicity gives clarity. It helps us to see clearly, to align ourselves with what the Lord is saying. I'm establishing my church. All this fanfare in the world is window dressing. Here's what I'm about. And so the question is, what advances his kingdom most? And I, I mean, I face this as much as you do as a minister. Decisions of where to prioritize, what to prioritize, where to put time, what things to pursue, and so on and so forth. And the question that has to come down for me as well, well, of these options, which is going to do the most in terms of advancing the kingdom? That's helpful because it enables us to take things that would be otherwise cloudy and make them clearer. You know, what's going to help the interests of the peace of Christ's church, the unity of his church, the reformation of his church? What's going to help the, the, the advance, the ingathering of souls, conversion of sinners, whatever? All these things. And the poor of his people trust in it. They betake themselves unto it. They give themselves to it. They apply their hearts. They align themselves with what the Lord has aligned them, has purposed. And so they're not jumping on the train with the Babylonians or Assyrians or the Philistines, certainly enemies of God, avowed enemies of God, overt enemies of God, at war with God. So they're not obviously jumping on that bandwagon. But they're also not getting swept away with, with other things that would deter and detract and divert them from the thing that is most needful, God's founding of Zion. This helps us, I think, in our own circumstances, right? There's, it doesn't matter. We could, drop, we could drop you into any era. It wouldn't be different. I know you think with all your heart that it is different right now. But in this respect, it's not different. No matter where we drop you, the, 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 the world is always going to want to control the message of what's important and what's significant, and what's 
history making and what's notable and and so on and the lord's people just say sorry you know been there done that got the t-shirt you know we belong to the lord now and we, we, we're not so easily duped. We can see through things. We know what's important. We know what the Lord is doing. We know what his purposes are. We know where all this is going. We know, you know, what will triumph in the end. And, you know, there's even a, you know, people like to root for those who win. I'm not saying that's a good thing. But the fact is that the Lord's people are aligned with what wins? We win. Christ wins. The King wins. Always, everywhere, in all times and places. And however difficult it may look, the Lord is at work in doing something with his church. And the pressures, the setbacks, the declensions, the sins, the discipline, the reformations, whatever, he's at work in bringing forward his cause with perfection. Oh, what a wonder it will be when on the backside of human history in this world we're able, through the lens of resurrected eyes and sinless souls and further revelation from Christ himself to be able to see all of the remarkable complexity of how he wove together every thread in the annals of history in order to bring about the thing that he told us in the book in order to bring, back, to bring forward his cause and his kingdom. And so, yes, the Lord looks with mercy upon his people in a difficult day, even in the midst of their own sins. The Lord promises deliverance to his people because the Lord is about founding, establishing his church in the world. And that indeed is good news. It's good news in any dark day. It is bright, bright light that brings us great joy. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, the King who rules in glory, how thankful we are that what thou hast purposed will indeed endure, that when thou stretchest forth thy hand, there is none that can turn it back, that every enemy of God and every force of evil will be overthrown, and laid in the dust and humiliated, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ shall shine and shine and shine and continue to expand and advance and our King will have all of the glory and all of the praise. And, O oh Lord, we would have it so, how we long for our Redeemer to be magnified, to be glorified in the earth, to be glorified in our own hearts. Lord, subdue us unto thyself and bring all, uh, all else to pass in a way that would advance this kingdom against which even the gates of hell shall not prevail. For we 